Nagesh Rao was sitting in New York visiting his family when someone on his team at the Bureau of Industry and Security at the Commerce Department headquarters called him about a large box that had just arrived. They opened it and found about $10,000 worth of Lenovo laptops and Microsoft Surface tablets inside. At that moment, the Bureau Chief Information Officer knew the fraudsters were a little bit too close for comfort. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me with how Rao's experience is a stark reminder for federal executives that scammers are coming for them and what they need to do to protect themselves. Jason, tell us more about the scam. A box arrived, and what's next? Basically, what happened to Nagesh Rao is he was whaled. This is a term that is getting, unfortunately, Tom, much more commonly well-known in the private sector, but now it's happening to government people. You've heard of phishing, right, where you know you cast yeah. the wide net and try to catch some fish. Well, now you're going after the whales, right, the big people, the CEOs, the executives, the senior vice presidents. They're called you know, the people with access to money and, and power. And it's very similar to if you ever you know, heard about casinos and they go after the whales, the big spenders. This is all about the same thing. The scammers are going after senior executives because they know that's who holds the power. And for Nagesh, what happened to him was about three to five months ago, he got an email or several emails and some LinkedIn requests about a solicitation that's on the street. Nagesh said to himself, I don't have any solicitations on the street. So after doing some research, they found the fake solicitation. Someone put it together and we have a screenshot of it on federalnewsnetwork.com. And someone had put out a fake RFQ asking for these companies to send who they thought was the Bureau of Industry and Security CIO, some sample laptops and, de- and, and Microsoft Surface tablets. And, and it was something like $50,000 wow. worth of equipment they were looking for. And Nagesh was very out there saying, don't do this. This is fake. He was very active on LinkedIn and other places to really try to stamp this down. And unfortunately, what happened, some small business got caught up. What he thinks happened is they got called from the scammer. The scammer thought it was, you know, Rao and decided to send the laptops and the Surface tablets to an address. But they looked at the address and said, hey, why are they asking me to send it to Atlanta when this is in D.C.? So they decided to better safe than sorry and send it to D.C. And that's when this whole thing really got uh, much, much bigger. So I think this is an ex- one example, but but a Something that's happening bigger and bigger to a lot of agencies and a lot of executives in the private sector. Yeah, so this box got there and there was all this equipment in it. What did they do with it? Well, first thing they did was they called the small business and said, hey, uh, I think you were a victim of a scam. And the small business was like, oh, my goodness, because $10,000 is a lot of money to be sending out. And obviously, if, if they would have sent it to the scammers, they would never have seen the light of day again. So what they did was they, they called them and said, hey, this is wrong. There's no RFQ. And then they said, by the way, we're not going to pay for the shipping that they had initially been charged, but we will send this back to you and you'll pay for that shipping too. And I think the small business was happy enough to get that equipment back and and pay for whatever the charge for the, the, the fees were. But what Rao's trying to do is get the word out much broader, again, through LinkedIn, by talking at the recent ACT, IACT, Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference about this scam, because this is going to be a bigger problem and a bigger concern. Tom, you and I, and, and, and a lot of people have been in this space for a long time. Remember, there's fake calls from the IRS or the Social Security Administration. But I think this is one of the most po- you know, first public attempts where fraudsters tried to pose actually as a senior executive. That's pretty amazing. And so you said this is just a kind of an example, a one-off against Raoul, but sounds like everybody should be on their guard at the executive level in the government. I think because whaling is such an interesting, you know, such a, such an a, a attractive 
group of people to go after these these high-powered executives. And in fact, Raul told me another example. When he used to work at the Small Business Administration, the, the chief of staff was impersonated and they called the CFO over there and said to the CFO, hey, I need you to transfer money to this account. And to the CFO's credit at, at SBA, he said, this isn't right. So he called the chief of staff who said, no, I didn't ask you for that. So he was smart enough to stop it. And I think that's what we're hearing is, is you have to be really on guard against anything that just seems out of the ordinary. A new account, why would you ask me to do it? Hey, just this once, change your, your process. And that's what Rao said. In fact, that's what Linda Miller, the founder and CEO of Audient Group, and also a fraud expert, former GAO, former PRAC uh, deputy director, and all of them said you have to be aware of what's out of the ordinary. And if it seems out of the ordinary, you need to check, double check, and triple check, and not just do it. And, and Tom, we've seen a lot of anecdotal evidence in the private sector of companies losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, because, well, it seemed like my CEO called me and told me to cha transfer the money, and they are my boss, and that's what <laughs> so I listened to my boss. So I think that's why all these senior executives need to be more aware of what's going on. Yeah, I guess at some level, the higher up you are, that kind of a message, be sure to transfer this or that there, would be so specific to you that it's easier to be fooled in some way at that level than perhaps at a lower level where the scams are more generic. You're absolutely right. And then when you add on top of that, as Linda Miller told me, you can go on the dark web or the open deep web and get tools, manuals, help to, to do fraud. There's fraud as a service. All of this is out there that can be picked up on. And then on top of that, Tom, and you and I, again, we spent two conferences together, GuyTech and ActIAC. And what was the big topic? Chat GPT. Could you imagine putting into the chat GPT, hey, write an RFQ that uses the same language as Nagash Rao from Bureau of Industry Security would. And all of a sudden you have this really interesting looking, uh, very <laughs> accurate looking, uh, at least to, to some people, uh, RFQ that really can fool people. And again, Linda Miller talks about, hey, don't just follow people blindly, really ask those questions. And, and, and she goes, listen, the, the commerce example really worries me because it's a sophistication of fraud. Sure. And, and that's the real problem. It's, it's the type of scheme that maybe we, we hadn't seen in the past, but all of a sudden it's starting to bubble up. Yes. And with respect to that generative types of AI, I think people are, I think we heard also at that conference too, that it's really good, much better than any other tool at translation. So we used to laugh at the emails from odd countries or from China that had the terrible syntax and spelling errors. But now with the chat GPT types of programs, you could write an elaborate piece of correspondence and it could get translated perfectly. And I think that's a lot of the concern. I mean, we, we heard this from people at the conference about grant writing. People who never could win a grant before all of a sudden can use this tool to win grants because they, they have a better sense of how it happens. The opposite is true, too. The bad actors, the threat actors, can also now use it to really take advantage of people. And I think that's why, you know, to, to at least Linda Miller and, and other fraud experts, that's why this is so concerning. And what else did Linda say that people can do to protect themselves at the federal executive level? I think there's a couple things that the federal executives need to be aware of. Number one, they need to be aware of their online presence, whether video or audio or written communications, what's out there. Second, they need to work closely with their cyber teams and using something called cyber threat reconnaissance tools. And this is the idea of you go into the dark web and see who's mentioning Jason Miller or Tom Temin, what the thread of the discussion is, and then monitor how that thread of the discussion is happening. You may understand that there, you know, that there's something happening against you or your organization. As Linda told me, there is no honor among thieves, so they like to talk about themselves uh, and what all their things they're doing quite a bit. And then at the same time, if if you do find yourself a target of fraud or scammers, 
contact the FBI first and very closely behind that, contact your agency's inspector general. I think the IG would know what's going on and may help to warn other executives. Good advice. And by the way, if anyone wants to whale me, send me a 2023 Electroglide Highway King in orange and birch white, and uh, I'll accept it. Tom, you probably just mentioned some sort of motorcycle that only a few people will know. Yes, right. It's a big Harley hog, and, you know, my wife won't let me buy a new one, but maybe I'll get whaled and get one that way. Hey, (laughs) (laughs) Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. Check out his story under the Federal Report, now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. 
Now, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.